you guys remember the last time you saw a really good movie? You don't have to yell out what it was or anything, but I want you just to think back. What was the last really good movie you saw? Come on, think about it for a second. What's the last really good movie I saw? What's the last movie you saw that made you not just, you know, feel entertained by the content, but stirred by the content? Something that maybe convicted you or something that maybe brought about certain emotions or certain feelings. Think back. Think of the last time you had that experience. I was thinking about, you know, the movies over the course of the last few years that have really impacted me. And it's a short list. I mean, I'll be honest. I'm not deeply moved by that many films these days. But uh, years ago now, years, years, years ago, I was actually 16 years old. I can remember it very clearly going to uh, the movie theater with my dad and my older brother. And let's see if I just broke this. No, I think we're good. Uh, my dad and my older brother to, uh, to go see one of in the history of epic war films. And it was the movie Saving Private Ryan. Let me see your hand if you ever saw that movie. Pretty brutal film. It opens with that scene, you know, Omaha Beach, D-Day, people getting killed as soon as they open the gates, you know, World War II, the whole thing. And the, the story of the film was kind of applicable to where we're going today. So let me just unpack it for you for 30 seconds and it'll kind of stir in your mind the whole story. Tom Hanks plays this captain, this army captain who uh, is on the beach, D-Day, survives and ends up give, getting this assignment where he has to go find a private named Ryan, right? James Ryan. It's uh, Matt Damon. And so he has to go find Matt Damon and him and seven other army guys get assigned to this responsibility. The reason they have to find Matt Damon is he is one of four brothers. His three brothers have all died in battle. And so the general of the army decides that Matt Damon needs to go home because his mom should not have to lose all four of her sons. And so they have to find him. The problem is he para, you know, he parachuted down. He was a paratrooper in France and there's thousands of people and hundreds are dead and no one knows where anybody really is. And so for the next three hours, if you remember the film, you are watching how these eight guys for three hours are searching for an individual that they don't know and don't really care about, right? And they search the entire movie for this guy. They get killed, they get shot, they suffer, they die, they get knives jammed into their chest, their heads get blown off. And after three hours, they finally find this guy and uh, he doesn't want to go home. And finally, they convince him the whole deal. And the last scene, just ruined the movie for you, Tom Hanks, the captain, gets shot. He's sitting there bleeding, his hand is shaking and James Ryan comes out and James Ryan starts talking to him and say, he doesn't realize that he's literally in his last moments. And so uh, the captain says, uh, says uh, Ryan, Come here, and he pulls him forward, and he says, he looks at him, and he just says, James, earn this. And then he dies. And then uh, the film clicks over to like 40 years later when James Ryan is standing at the grave of this captain who gave his life so that he could go home. And, uh, and he questions, did I earn this? You know, and that film leaves me with a lot of questions. Probably the first one that stirred in my heart when I saw it the first time when I was 16 and later years when I saw it again was, that is kind of a ridiculous assignment, is it not? I mean, is it crazy that eight men would give their lives for one guy? I mean, is one man in the midst of hundreds of thousands of soldiers in a battle, is one man, you know, is it justified to give all that the others have so that one guy can just go home? Is that even a legit assignment? Do these guys die in vain? And then, you know, the question, how do I live a life? If I'm James Ryan, how do I live a life after that experience that is worthy of the death of these individuals and shouldn't? that experience shift the way I do all of my life. These guys died for me. What if I waste my life? 
some stirring thoughts. Well, we're starting a new series today called Contend With Me. Now, that word contend means to grapple. It means, it means to fight. It means to challenge. It's this idea of battling or fighting for something. And the idea frequently occurs in the New Testament. In the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul writes to contend with a single mind for the faith of the gospel. In the book of Jude, uh, he writes, contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Now, we're going to ask some huge questions in this series. Questions like, uh, what does God consider valuable in this life? What does God place value on? Why is there so much pain and suffering in this world? What are we doing currently in this world to stop that pain? And what's the mature response to the suffering we see all around us? And how do we win? You can turn to somebody and say, this is going to be awesome. It is. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a great series. It'll lead us all the way to Easter. If you have a Bible, go to Luke chapter 19. If you don't, uh, you can just read the massive screen behind me when it comes up. But uh, I'm going to tell you a quick story in the Bible, the story of Zacchaeus. If you grew up in church, you probably know it's a story of a sinner who Jesus befriends and goes to his house. And the sinner gives his life to Christ, surrenders his life to Jesus, becomes a Christian, makes right the wrongs of the past. And uh, Jesus then finishes his conversation with Zacchaeus with some specific words. The religious people today were not thrilled about the fact that Jesus was being kind to this wicked man. But the wicked man was seeking Christ. And so uh, we see in verse 10, Jesus... Jesus' response to the whole process, he finishes up this part of the scripture by saying this in verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Let's pray this morning. Thank you for your word, God. Thank you for um, this incredible truth that you have given to us. Jesus, I verbally confess that we believe you are just as alive right now as you were the days you walked in Nazareth. Thank you for every person here, every story here, every uh, different reason why people ended up in this room today. Thank you that we have the privilege to pause and to hear from you. God, we all confess that uh, we are not interested in opinions. We have plenty of those in our world. We're not interested in the thoughts of men or women. Today, in this season, at this time, Sunday morning, we want to hear God speak. God, would you speak to me today? Would you press upon my heart in the way that only you can? I open up myself to your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Reading that phrase, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, not understanding the essence of where it came from, kind of, you know, makes the phrase void of all of its presence, all of its power. It's kind of like watching the last four minutes of Saving Private Ryan. You know, going in and seeing Tom Hanks die and watching Matt Damon wipe away a tear and being like, okay, well, that's a good movie. But when you see the whole process, when you see James Ryan, you know, out lost by himself and you see these guys searching for him and this guy gets his head blown off and this guy's an English teacher and this guy, it just wants to get home to his mom and this guy misses his wife and you watch the whole process and you see the whole thing unfold and then you see the sacrifice. Then you experience how important that sacrifice is. So let me give you some backstory today. Some backstory to the phrase, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is going to be a review for some of us who are Christians, but I want you to see it in perspective, okay? I'm going to give you basically from the dawn of time 
till now in 30 seconds, okay? So starting off with this idea that God is a creator. Christians believe that God is the creator. And he is already mysterious, okay? Much of him can be known, but the very first thing we learn, discern about God that we must understand is that he is three persons and one God. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. All equal this mystery of the Trinity. And so God the creator, Father, Son, and Spirit creates everything. He creates the visible. He creates the invisible. He creates all that we see and don't see. He creates the stars, the planets, the moon, everything. And he creates this earth. He creates an invisible realm unseen by the natural eye, a realm where there are spirit beings, where there are forces, where there are things that you and I cannot see. Some people, especially in our world today, would like to deny that this world is, that this invisible world is real. But the Bible says very clearly that this world that we don't see. And the scripture describes how God, for whatever reason, called planet Earth and all of his creation to plant upon this place a creation that images his reflection. And so human beings are not just one of many creations God made. They are the very image of God in the flesh. And so human beings hold this particular place in God's heart as his image bearers. And so we see that God does this. And then we hear in the scripture about a rebellion. A rebellion that took place in a spiritual realm that we don't discern. A rebellion where one of the created creatures decides to start an anarchy against the king, against the creator. And he rallies other spiritual beings to his side and seeks to overthrow the power of the creator. Now this individual gets made fun of or made simplified in our culture today. There are many different words that are used, but every word. We don't really know the essence of his name. We just know that he is a being, okay? And so he's called Satan or Satan. That just means the adversary. He's called the devil. He's called Lucifer. All these different phrases or words, much of it mysterious, but there is this spiritual being that has rebelled against God. And so in this battle, in this contending that occurs between God and this force, he is cast out of the invisible realm where God dwells in body or in, in fullness and brought into this place called earth. He's brought into this place and this is of course, again, mysterious to us. How can he be cast out? How can he be? But either way, we realize that Satan has been rejected from the nearness of the presence of God. And so what happens now in the story of God is that seething with anger, this spiritual being seeks to distort and destroy the crowning creation of the one he hates. And he targets humanity. And he tempts humanity. And the story of the scripture is that humanity willfully, abundantly embraces the temptation and joins this rebellion. And so now deep in the bones of every human being is this defiance towards their creator, this desire to be the creator, this desire to be in control, this desire to decide what's right and wrong. And we see that this tension manifests in a very real way in our world. One of the great scholars and theologians, Martin Lloyd-Jones, says it like this, I suggest the belief in a personal devil or demon activities is the touchstone by which one can most easily test any profession of Christian faith today. In a world of collapsing institutions, moral chaos, increasing violence, never was it more important to trace the hand of the prince of the power of the air. If we cannot discern the chief 
cause of our ills, how can we hope to cure them? And so what we see is this sin of humanity leads to sickness and disease and poverty and murder and lying and hate and all the wickedness that this world is filled with comes from this root called sin and corruption spreads everywhere and those that are not responsible get hurt. John Wimber, one of the great uh, leaders of the church in the last hundred years, says that humanity has been infected by sin, producing irrational thinking and erratic, self-destructive behavior. Sickness, disease, death are continually threatening us. False teachers and empty philosophies deceive many. Storms, famines, floods, earthquakes ravage the earth. The world system of political, social, and economic relationships has become cruel and oppressive, and demonic hosts of unseen adversaries tempt, torment, attack, and enslave all who are most vulnerable. Charles Spurgeon says that the world is a battlefield of which the fierce hurricane of conflict has swept. We're living on Omaha Beach, is what he's saying. That planet Earth is a place of great carnage, a place of great suffering. And God, this creator God, is a God of perfect justice. And so the scripture describes a tension now where God must judge these beings who have rebelled willfully against him. And so his judgment is eternal darkness and torment. And he prepares a place for these spirit beings, the demon and his angels, or the devil and his angels. He prepares this place, and it's known in Scripture as hell. It's known as Scripture as this place of torment, this place of suffering. And he prepares it for them, and yet humanity joins the forces of this dark spirit and are now dragged into this place of torment and suffering because of the rebellion that dwells in their heart. This is a reality. This is a reality that each of us must discern and deal with and decide, will I believe this? Because if we believe it, it should change absolutely everything. Everything. God is also described in scripture, not only as just, but a God of deep compassion, a God of incredible love. And for whatever reason in his sovereignty, he does not give demons and angels a second opportunity to return to him. And yet in his grace, he chooses to rescue people. Check this out. So without forfeiting his deity, the second person of the Trinity decides, stay with this idea, decides, and before eternity passed had already decided, that he would forever unite himself to the creation, humanity. Think about this idea. God the Son decides that he will be fully God, but also embrace fully man and become both God and man so that by becoming human, he would be born in a manger. He would be rejected by his people. He would be common. He would, at 30 years old, begin a ministry to start to reconcile the world to himself. And he would perfectly fulfill over 300 prophecies specifically outlining every nuance of his life. And in fulfilling those, establish God's justice in full. And so God, the Son, comes to earth and dwells among us. One of the prophecies in Daniel chapter 7, written hundreds of years before Jesus was ever on earth physically, was that he would be called the Son of Man. Interesting name for a guy that didn't have a natural dad. The Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man really was a name to embody his responsibility. His responsibility was to represent mankind. The Son of Man to represent humanity. And so the son of man, Daniel prophesies in Daniel chapter 7, there will be one called the son of man who will receive an everlasting kingdom from the ancient of days. And he tells this great prophecy and Jesus now 
in Luke chapter 19, calls himself by that name. The Son of Man has come. The Son of Man has come. The Son of Man has come. And he comes for a specific target. Think about the phrase we just read. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The Son of Man has come. The target is the lost. Who are the lost? Every person. Every person far from God. Those in the wreckage of this war zone called planet Earth. Those that are lost because of sin, because of pride, because of religion that's puffed them up and thought that they were holy because they're numbed by entertainment, dulled by addictions. You and me were lost. He came for us. He came for all those that would receive him. He came for all those that would turn to him. And it makes you start to wonder, does it not? It makes me start to wonder. If I struggle when watching Saving Private Ryan to think that eight dudes should give their life for a guy who is a private, the lowest rank in the military, right? He is the lowest rank in the military, and they're going to give a life of a captain. And all these other guys, they had a sniper with them. They're going to give all their lives to save this one guy. Is that even justified? Now, how much immeasurably more is the tension of the greatest story in all the world that God the Son would give his life for rebellious, distracted, frustrated, ungrateful people like you? trying to make you feel good just trying to make you trying to make you feel good i heard a story a preacher told recently about how he was driving down the highway and uh as he's driving he sees a guy get out of his car and start running down the interstate and he's wondering what in the world why would a man get out of his car and run down the interstate i mean not the normal thing that people do Maybe his car broke down. No, his car was running. He was fine. Maybe, you know, his daughter is like, you know, hurt on the side. No, he's just trying to figure out what is this guy doing? And finally he looks ahead and there it is. His little yippy dog is running down the freeway. And this man has decided to risk his life for his dog so that he could save. And some of you would say, amen. But most of us would say, that's ridiculous. I am not going to risk my life for an inferior creature. It's a foolish decision. If he dies, he dies. Let him die. If he's going to get hit by a car, he was a stupid... Anyways, so there's a parable in the New Testament taught by Jesus. And it's an interesting parable. The way he phrases it is interesting. He says, which one of you, if you had a hundred sheep and one ran out into the woods like a stupid idiot sheep? This is just in translation. And would you not leave the 99? Would you not leave the 99 and go after the one? And until you found it, you wouldn't stop. And when you found it, you would come back and you would throw this huge party because you found the one that escaped. Doesn't that make sense to you? And I'm reading it thinking, no. And then he says, which one of you, if you had 10 coins, would not sweep and you lost one, would not sweep the entire house for the one coin that you had lost. And when you find it, you'd call all your friends together and they probably wouldn't come because it's ridiculous. But if you did, you'd call all your friends together and say, hey, everybody, I'm so pumped. I found the one coin that I lost and everybody would be so happy and they would say, yes, let's party. He found his coin. This is great. Wouldn't you do that? And I'm reading, I'm thinking, um, okay, if I had, I'm not a shepherd, but if I had a hundred sheep and one of them ran his stupid butt into the woods, I would think, so long, right? I mean, you're a stupid sheep, you know, don't go there. I'm not going to run through rivers and forests and mountains and everything, chasing this one, leaving the other so that I can rest. I'm thinking, let him go, let him go. 
He came with a specific mission. Stay with me today. He came with a specific mission to seek and to save the lost. Now we see in scripture, and this is amazing, that he has forever and all time, for all time, already accomplished the saving part of his mission. That there's nothing you and I can do to add to the salvation purchased through Jesus Christ on the cross. That God's strategy was once and for all to pay for the sin of all those who would come to him. From the day you were born to the day you die, forever fully forgiven. This is the greatest news in all of human existence. That God loves you so much that he would substitute the life of his perfect son. That Jesus, God, the son, would come as a substitute for you. Exchange his perfect life for your wicked life. So that in this life and the next life, you can stand before God blameless upon Christ alone. It's not because you gave money to the church. It's not because you wore a nice suit on Sunday. It's not because you helped an old lady across the street. It is only because of Jesus. He justifies you freely. He justifies you fully. He justifies you forever. This is the greatest news in human history. But it leaves me with this thought, why? Why does God do this? I read a story about how in 1936, I think it was, if I get my date wrong, don't like send me an email or anything, but... King Edward VIII rose to power in Great Britain. Maybe you know the story. And this guy, for 41 years, he was 41 years old when he became king, for 41 years had been living in the palace as a prince, seeing his father and the other leaders, you know, leading the Great, great Britain. And, uh, of course, a very prestigious position, king of England, you know, kind of a big deal. And a uh, little problem with uh, King, Richard's, or king Edward's uh, process. He falls in love with an American who had been twice divorced. And according to the law, he was not able to marry a woman who had been twice divorced. And so uh, he struggles for a little while to decide what he will do and then decides, I am going to forsake the throne of England to marry this woman that most people wouldn't want to marry at all. And people are going, you're crazy. What are you thinking? Why would you give up the throne of England for this woman. The son of man came to seek and save the lost. Here's what blows my mind. Jesus becomes human. And the scripture teaches, try to get this thought around in your mind, that he will forever be human. That when he rose from the dead, he was seen by the disciples as a human. That forever, 10 million years from now, when we're all gone in eternity past, Jesus will still be fully God and fully man. Forever, God the Son decided to completely reorient his existence for his deep love for you and I. For all time, God the Son has united himself to humanity. What makes someone do this? Obviously, he's operating from a specific value system. Obviously, he values something very highly. It's this. Let me just tell you the secret. Jesus believes lost people are worth it. Jesus believes that those that are far from God are worth it. They're worth the longest pursuit, chasing them through mountains and woods. They're worth the greatest sacrifice, death itself. Jesus believes lost people 
are worth it. He would jump out on the highway and chase you through the traffic. He would chase you through the mountains and the rivers. He would sweep the whole house just to find one. He would gather a team and go right into France and search all through the chaos and the war zone around him just to find one lost person. Jesus believes lost people are worth it. As we start this Contend With Me series, here's the tension that I want to press upon you today. How can you and I receive his love and not actively embrace his values? How can you and I receive the love the forgiveness and the acceptance of Christ, believe in our hearts that we're one flesh with God, He being the head, we being the body, spirits united for eternity. How can we believe that we're one flesh with God and He reoriented His entire life around the lost and you and I don't reorient five minutes of our day around the lost? Is it possible for us to say that we love God so deeply and affectionately and be so carefree about those he cares so much about? As I processed this and prayed for this and thought about this series, contend with me. And as we focus on this idea of the lost, those that are far from God, I was shocked by the incredible love of Christ and by my incredible indifference so often. That I would reorient my life around my values, around my priorities, around my ambitions, around my job, around things that are good and blessings from God very often. But I would not even give a care or a thought or a question to those who are far from God. Easily walking by them every day at work and every day at the streets. And I would not even have any tension or pressure or burden to share the love of Christ that I've experienced. Jesus says right before he ascends to heaven in Mark 16, go into all the world, proclaim the good news to everyone. In other words, what he's saying is, listen, my mission was to come, seek, and save the lost. I've come. I fulfilled that part of the mission. And I've saved. I've saved to the uttermost. But there's a little aspect of the mission that I'm going to include you in as my body that you are going to participate with me in. And it's your responsibility with me to fulfill this mission. And the part that I've left for you to fulfill is the seeking. In Luke chapter 14, there's a story about a great banquet. It's a picture of God. And God throws a great banquet. And many people reject his offer to come to the banquet. And so he goes to his servant. And he says it like this. He says, go to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house might be full. Compel them. Go out there and just beg them to come. Compel them. In other words, he's saying, listen, I've modeled my values I've reoriented my life around the lost. And then Jesus offers to us, contend with me. Contend with me. This season of City Church, we're going to take the next few weeks to talk about the theology of the miraculous. Talk about God's power to heal, God's power to save, all these things. But we begin this series with a gut check. And say, oh God, would you in your grace enable me right now to reorient my life around the lost? Would you, by your grace, enable me to reorient my life around the lost? God, if you value people so much 
How can I not? How can I not? I want to make this real practical for you today. I want to challenge you with three very simple, very specific things that every Christian in this room probably knows and few Christians in this room actually do. See, a lot of times in our lives, it's not what we know that stops us or don't know. It's what we don't apply. And I want to challenge you over the next 28 days, okay, from today to Easter Sunday, to develop and cultivate some habits in your life. And don't stop after the 28 days, but use this as a on-ramp or a launch pad to develop these habits for the rest of your life. I'll give you three things specifically. To learn to contend for the lost with Jesus. Number one, you can write these down if you like. Number one, pray daily for the lost to be found. Pray daily for the lost to be found. It's pretty simple. We just don't do it. Jesus has put in our mouths the power to pray and the power to literally change history through our prayers, and yet we don't take time to pray. And we don't take time to ask him to open the eyes of the unbelieving. The Apostle Paul said, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is that they would be saved. Would you for the next 28 days commit to pray every single day for those who are far from God in your life? At City Church, what we did this time is we decided to create a little, a little uh, you know, help aid for you. You can pull it out. Go ahead and find this. When you walked in, you received a little card that looked like this. It said, contend with me. Everybody look under your seat, look next to you, and just try to find this card with me just for a second. Little simple card just has some, some prompts to get you going, to get you thinking, to get you considering. And then it gives you just seven lines to begin to pray for people that are far from God. This may be family members. This may be friends. This may be coworkers. This may be people that, you know, work at the Starbucks that you go to. Whatever's going on in your life, just begin to pray, oh God, would you give them a hunger for Jesus? Would you give them a passion to know you? Would you open their eyes to the reality of the spiritual world? And so I've already filled out mine because I kind of knew what the preacher was going to talk about. And so I've already filled out a few. I had seven lines. I couldn't stop. I had, I have seven, eight, nine, ten people on mine because I just, I, there was people that kept popping to mind. I was like, I need to pray for them. And so I've been praying every day for the last few days already for this, but I want to urge you, would you participate with me? Would you contend with me in this season right now to pray that the lost would be found? You have people in your life. You have family members, you have coworkers, you have friends, you have people that you know, that you interact with regularly that don't know Jesus. Would you pray for them? Would you pray for them? I want to press you and urge you. Embrace the value system of God. If he would do so much for people who are so ungrateful, could you not pray? Pray God blesses them. Pray God meets them. Pray God reveals his love to them. I don't know about you. I've seen it happen more times than I can count where someone just could care less about God and in a day, they're all of a sudden submitted, surrendered, and hungry for Jesus. What happened? I can promise you I know what happened. Someone prayed. Someone prayed. God's given you an opportunity to participate with him in seeking. Would you pray? Second thing, this is really simple. View your day like a letter from God to the world. View your day like a letter from God to the world. Colossians says, live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you have the right response for everyone. In other words, what I'm saying, wake up in the morning 
and live like a letter. God, today, this is a letter from you to the world. And ask God every morning for the next 28 days, God, who can I show kindness to today? You know that sometimes you don't show kindness unless you show it on purpose. So show it on purpose. And someone will say, wait a minute, you plan to show me kindness. Yeah, because I'm too selfish in myself, so I had to plan it. I had to plan it. Plan to show kindness. Who can I be kind to today? So that I can reflect the love of Christ in my world. Who can I encourage today on purpose? Third thing. Super simple. Share Jesus. Share. Share Jesus. Sometimes it's easy to share political views. Share Jesus. Share Jesus. I was at a uh, restaurant with a friend this week. And uh, there was a, a man, a Jewish man sitting next to us and he he interrupted our conversation he said excuse me i don't i don't want to be nosy i just heard you were talking and he you know he dis- discerned through our conversation that we were christians and he said um why do christians feel like they have to tell people about jesus he said you know i mean we're i'm a jew i don't i don't have to tell people about anything i just if they want to know i'll let them know but if they don't i won't I, why do christians have to tell people about jesus i said are you married awkward question He's like, no, almost. He said, you ever been in love? I said, you know, I've been married for almost 10 years now. And, um, and when I met that pretty little blonde girl when I was 16 years old, all I could think of is I'm going to pursue her. I'm going to pursue her. And 16 years later now, I'm still pursuing her. I'm still pursuing her. Why? Love. Why do Christians have to tell people about Jesus? Love. Because God so loves. That's why. It's awkward. It's uncomfortable. Love's uncomfortable. Let me say amen. Love is awkward. Sometimes you don't feel love. But you still choose love. That's why. That's why. read a book we'll finish with this today i read a book um years ago by leonard ravenhill called why revival tarries good book he tells this story about a criminal named charlie peace charlie peace was convicted of various crimes and sentenced to the death penalty in england and as he's walking do you see yourself in this story hopefully not as charlie peace as he's walking down death row in preparation to be executed It was customary at that time for a prison chaplain to walk alongside him and to read Bible verses alongside this criminal as he walked to death. And he's walking, this bitter, evil man, walking, and this prison chaplain is sleepily reading the routine thing that he has to read as he ushers people into the next life. And all of a sudden, in the midst of this process, Charlie Peace stops, and he looks at the chaplain and he says, what what are you reading? And the chaplain looks up and says, oh, um, just the consolations of religion. Charlie Peace looks at the prison chaplain and says this. He says, sir, if I believed what you and the church of God say that you believe, even if England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it, if need be, on hands and knees, and think it worthwhile living just to save one soul. 
from an eternity, eternal hell like that. This man could easily see the value system of Jesus and say, you know, you say you believe it, but you're just sleepily reading the most important thing in the world. Let's pray. Let's pray today. Holy Spirit, we take a moment now just to welcome your presence here. Welcome your power here. Thank you for speaking to us today. God, I pray that you would stir inside of us a love for the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you'd stir our hearts right now. Right now, that you'd stir our hearts to seek and to save the lost. God, we know that you've already come and we know that you've already saved. But you've placed in our hands this great joy of seeking. Father, I pray that you bring conviction right now. I pray that as we worship for a few minutes now, as we end this service, that Jesus, you would stir in our hearts specific people that you are asking us to seek, to pray for, to write a letter of God's love with our lives too, and to talk about Jesus on purpose with. Come, Holy Spirit. If God is using this ministry in your life, we would love to hear from you. Email us at mystory@ourcitychurch.org. For more information about the church, visit www.ourcitychurch.org.